At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and finding our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. But their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much, and may God bless America. May God bless America. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Public Access America. I think we have our guest here and I'm excited about that. Our friend Dan is going to be here to talk about a couple COVID scenarios and situations that have happened since the last time he was here. Hi, Dan. Hello, hello. It's went way too long, guys. How are you? Hey! You don't always get Superman on your schedule. You know what I mean? Sometimes you got to wait for him to fly in. (laughs) <laughs> oh you're too kind you're too kind no i'm I'm very happy to celebrate a milestone and uh be part of the podcast it's been great to kind of check in intermittently and see how you guys are doing and and continue to support the channel so i appreciate you you know i was thinking about our time um when we were podcasting and those things that we were trying to address um with the center for election science and for vaccines and with lexi on women's rights all of those things that we were battling in 2018 are are have evolved into a new level of confusion (laughs) they've mutated you can say right oh that that pun hit close to home there chad Oh man, it has been, it's been a wild journey, dude. You know, you think about where we were just a few months ago, the lifting mask mandates, we were, we would finally turn the corner. Life was going to be normal. And then this shit happened. I don't even know. I don't, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's been really frustrating, but at the same time, it's like, well, you know, I, I suppose that in, in terms of, in terms of what the, what diseases look like, this should have been expected. Yeah, I think there's there's two very closely ingrained concepts here. One is, you know, you said what we should have expected, what we should have expected versus what we should have planned and communicated. And those can be very different things or they were kind of very different things. If you talk to any evolutionary biologist or microbiologist or genomic scientists worth their salt, it was obvious that as soon as we realized we could not contain COVID, that it's going to just continue to circulate that you know, this virus is going to evolve, it was going to mutate just like any other infectious disease does, just like any other organism does. Um, And so having to be ready for that. But I think it's a it kind of goes back to the challenge of, we did not, in my opinion, as a society do a good enough job with science communication early on kind of setting realistic standards and saying, you know what, what is the end goal here, people kept talking about like, the pandemic ending, 
but they didn't really they left it open-ended like what does that mean and for me with my background in like microbiology infections like this is the stuff i do right like this is right my wheelhouse for me the pandemic ending was not the eradication of the virus that's pretty much impossible it was always you know we need to come to a point where we can manage the severe illness toll the death toll well enough and I think that was not well communicated because the way we think about disasters in this country is like, think like Hurricane Katrina, Superstorm Sandy, those things where there's a catastrophic moment and then there's months of fallout. And then, I mean, the deaths stop, the severe issues stop, the money kind of gets taken care of and we as a society move on. But with a disease like COVID, that's just not how it works. And I think we could have done a better job at the beginning talking more about how that, that manifests itself differently than what we're used to as a society and it comes back to the thing like really we scientists have been kind of poo-pooing the concept of talking to the public for way too long to the point where we have like ignored learning how to do that and have been focusing more on publishing papers and trying to get grant money than we have been about engaging the public and trying to get on the same level not not that the public is lower but it's like the public has different priorities and different things to worry about so we need to kind of be more mm -hmm. relatable so i think this goes back to the that same fundamental failure of like this was expected but we didn't communicate it well enough and we didn't use the right language to tell the truth in the right way that gets the public to understand and maintain that trust with the people who are working night and day to fight this virus so rant complete <laughs> Hmm. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, I've been trying to tell people is, is that the expectation is, is going to be that, you know, our bodies are not used to this particular virus, kind of like we are with the flu virus. You know, you've either not had enough variations go through your body, or you've not been vaccinated, or you've not been vaccinated with four different variations as it stands. And so like our bodies are just not used to this, which is why you're seeing people who got the original strain also get Delta and you're still having issues. Like eventually your body's going to learn. It's like, okay, we've seen something very similar to this. We've seen it multiple times. This is what, how we're going to fight this. And that's just kind of the reality where we're at. And so I'm kind of curious, what did that look like in the era of uh, the Spanish flu? Like, you know, when you saw those waves come through, you know, granted our testing and, and scientific capabilities are far better than they were a hundred years ago, but maybe historically speaking, we can kind of see something like, you know, we saw the original Spanish flu, then we saw a variant, then we saw a variant, then we saw a variant. And eventually people had enough variants go through their communities that, you know, now, yeah, we get used to the few, the, the flu going around. I mean, it still takes 115,000 people a year on average, but it's not the thing that it once was. Yeah, I think you really hit it on the head there with uh, the scientific capabilities being so different like 100 years ago. Back 100 years ago, we barely, I'm not, I need to check my history. I'm not even, did we even know that viruses existed back then? Like we knew influenza was a disease. We knew kind of it was spread by air, airborne and everything, but we had no no concept of how beautifully, I mean, I guess beautiful for me, but how how complex and diverse and 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 funky the microbial world is. I mean, the germ theory of disease had just barely been worked on, you know, by in the last the previous couple of decades. And you think of how far we've come. I mean, the one of the things that I keep reflecting on with COVID as compared to previous pandemics, including the 1918 flu, is the the we have so much scientific um 
I don't want to say perspective, but so many scientific eyes on this, right? You talk about all right. naming all these variants, right? The, but it's not just that the variants are named. That's a very standard thing with the flu. There's a very standard um, method, international method for naming different types of flus that are uh, isolated from different locations and different time periods from different sources. They're the types of surface proteins and everything. Like there's all the standard stuff and the, every kind of virus has its own standard format. But now for the first time in modern history, all of that science has been thrust into the public eye and everyone is scrutinizing it. And so scientists are struggling to catch up again with the communication piece of like, okay, what is Delta? Is it a different virus? What is a variant? Okay, let's talk about what a variant is. Well, now we need to go back to high school biology. We're learning about DNA to RNA to proteins, which is stuff that people haven't cared about because most people don't need to worry about what proteins their bodies are producing. They're trying to put food on the table. So I think, I think I will answer your question directly, but I think that's something important to keep in mind is that um, it does, uh, come up with a science communication again. But in terms of previous, you know, in, in terms of any pandemic, it's a complicated balance between, you know, host and host, uh, the, the term in the field is host pathogen interaction. So the pathogen being the agent that causes the disease, the host being the human or the whatever animal that it infects. So as the host if, develops immunity, the pathogen has to mutate. And those mutations are going to have, you know, better or worse outcomes, right? Just and some are going to be selected for by natural selection and some viruses are going to do really well. And so eventually there just became a balance between host immunity and the virus that caused the pandemic of 1918, that that virus is no longer really viable. So other flu viruses could survive more easily than they were able to take over. And that's uh, another another complicated, like you talk about all these balances, you know, you have to think about what the end goal of a virus is or end goal of a, of a pathogen that causes any kind of disease is. The perfect pathogen is not a virus or a bacteria or whatever that kills its host really well. Because if you kill your host quickly or too seriously or cause too much severe disease, that host is going to be either isolated or die quick, too quickly and the virus cannot pass on. So eventually the 1918 flu had this perfect balance of like being what's called transmissible while also causing the disease that killed a lot of people. But eventually because of the, the balance in host pathogen interactions changing that there was another virus that became more transmissible and just less deadly. So, but there's still, we still have isolates of the 1918 flu virus that people work on and put through cells and reproduce and study. And uh, we still have those, those, those vials of virus to study, um, especially in flu labs around the world. And I actually was able to work on some of them in a, in a, in a past life in a virus lab. But yeah, no, I think you've raised a really good point about there is the, always this balance between host pathogen interactions. Doesn't matter if it's flu, if it's COVID, if it's you know yellow fever virus or Zika or whatever, there's always these balances going on. Um, but in order to kind of get the public to appreciate that, we can't just not communicate it and then just fling it all at the public and say, okay, here's all the stuff you should care about. And they're like, well, why? You just, I just had, was told I had to be furloughed from my job for three months because of some virus that I don't understand, right? And that experience is valid. You can't invalidate that experience as a scientist and expect people <clears throat> to want to continue to trust you on month 20 of a pandemic. Right. I think you bring up a good point between the two. And when I think back in history, how information was disseminated, it was usually through a, a doctor or a professional. And I think we've diverted information around those people to bring it right to the public. And in that, I think the media offers pieces of the story. 
And I think people hear pieces of the story and they think they know everything when they used to be able to go to their doctor to get uh, reliable uh, translations of that information. Yeah, and you still definitely can with a physician, right? But first of all, medicine has gotten so incredibly complicated that no physician is going to know everything. I don't pretend to know everything. I don't know. I don't the smallest fraction of the world of microbiology and i'm a professional microbiologist right um but the other thing is that going back i, I love this kind of theme of, of science communication and i, I apologize mm-hmm. for once again harping on it on another episode do it yeah. uh, i love it but that's the, why we bring you the, on. the 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 main challenge or a major challenge <laughs> that we're facing is that the people who are really good at the science and can really understand what's going on and the people who are experienced at talking to the public and have created the platforms through which the public gains information, there's almost no overlap, right? There's the right. If I think of the you know, any it, it, just in the in the, me, the mainstream media. Obviously, you have people giving the news because they've been trained how to, their job is to deliver the news that other people deliver, and people can kind of translate and make it simplified. Here's a story that the public needs to know. But also in right. modern the modern side of like blogging and podcasting and the wide world of the internet, like what we're doing right now, right? There's there's not enough people who know the science well enough can also understand the the methods of the communication media that is used in today's you know society and be able to leverage that to communicate that properly like even scientists who've been really trying to catch up in the last year we're still missing the mark and that the reality is we're we're 10 15 20 years too late to the game and we really just have to hope that we're prepared for the next pandemic and that this is kind of awoken enough scientists minds that like hey it's not enough to know the science. We have to know how to talk to the public. We have to know how to relate to the media. We have to know how to write for all audiences and not a way that is condescending. And 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 that comes down to a fundamental respect by scientists of saying, you know what, just knowing the knowledge of science is not the pinnacle of society. All right. There's there's a there's a philosophical break that has to happen at the highest echelons of the scientific community. And that that's just either going to take time or another really serious issue to arise. But it, it is frustrating from my perspective as someone who did spend some time working in public relations and did spend some time working in, you know, podcasting and out, so, social media outreach and everything, and also knows the science for a lot of scientists to go, even after 20 months, oh, this is this, why the hell are you doing that? Like, the, the, the reason I'm doing that is because I care about wanting people to have good, accurate information. But I also care about the fact that science itself needs to evolve as fast as, if not more quickly than this virus is mutating, if we're going to continue getting the public's trust so we can actually solve these issues. Mm -hmm. Great way to put it. There is people out there that know what we don't know and take advantage of that. And you're the only people that can help that. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of what the end of the pandemic looks like, is it when we can finally have enough cases without overwhelming our hospital system? Is it, you know, when we've had a certain number of variants? I think, you know, we have a lot of political pundits that will will scream at the top of their lungs, <clears throat> Jim Jordan, uh, about all of what the end of this actually looks like. And I don't think that, you know, one of the things that you know, what the public is hoping for versus I think what science expects versus what public health expects. We don't, I, I feel like that's one thing where we've never really had this clear expectation. And, and maybe the answer is, is that there's not a clear expectation as of yet. 
you know, one of the things that I know that we've looked at is, you know, what does the end of the pandemic look like here in Washington state? And the answer has been overwhelmingly that, you know, it'll be when we're fine, when we finally stop having our system completely overwhelmed by one disease. There's never going to be an end. It's going to be a gray line, not a black line. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. No, you're absolutely, both of you are absolutely right. And that comes back to the analogy I raised before, like comparing this to like any of the hurricanes or, you know, 9-11 or mm-hmm. the Afghanistan, you know, pullout that was, you know, all these things that the public sees as disasters or horrible things going on. There is a punctuated end when it comes to human events. Mm-hmm. And even though there's like consequences that build up on one another, like, you know, think about, I don't know, I'm just... Pull, pick one out of the hat, you know, Benghazi, people were riled up about that. But eventually, the actions that drive people's frustrations about that end in some way. And even right. though life goes on, and there's consequences, like the, the, the past shapes the future, there is kind of a, an end of the storybook. And the reality is, when it comes to viruses, there, there is no end. There's only there, there's one yeah. virus in the history of humanity that we've eradicated. And that's smallpox. And we're very close to eradicating polio. But the main thing is that smallpox and polio uh, only used humans as a host. So when you talk about this this scientific uh, concept called spillover, by the way, spillover by David Quammen, fantastic book. Even though it was published pre-COVID, it explains all this in beautiful detail. Uh, would highly recommend to anyone who's listening. It really, really outlines this. But anyway, spillover is you know movement of an infectious disease from different animals into humans or vice versa right COVID has spilled over into everything we have we've had a tiger test positive white-tailed deer populations in in the united states are testing positive for covid obviously the 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 standard consensus is that this came from bats potentially moved through other animals as well there's close variants of coronaviruses when you have an animal when you have a virus like that it never goes away it doesn't end it doesn't go extinct it just moves into another host and bides its time and changes over time into something else right so the reality is covid's never going to go away SARS-CoV-2 is never going to go away unless we eradicate all hosts from the planet in which it could possibly be and if we vaccinate it's impossible we can't possibly vaccinate some the everything with 100% effectiveness so it goes back so what is the end of the pandemic like you said Jeffrey there's no consensus what public health professionals want as an end of the pandemic versus what scientists want versus what politicians want versus what the public wants. The public wants to go back to normal. The public, uh, public health professionals want, you know, to have to stop reporting this disease in in large enough numbers that it overwhelms their days. And believe me, I have a lot of friends who are just overwhelmed, just filing reports of all these cases and the, and politicians want to move on to other stuff and and medical professionals want their hospitals to not be filled anymore but that doesn't mean that the virus is gone so having definitions and having missions with that have clear manageable goals like specific manageable reasonable like that's that's what we're missing that's what we always missed because we dove in classic america we dove in without a clear end goal in sight and just like oh we got to manage the situation and having no right granted it's almost impossible it was unprecedented for a new virus to emerge out of nowhere that we had no idea what was going on um, with it but you still have to kind of at least try to envision an end at the beginning to help you guide your process and i'm saying all of this as somebody who's practiced in covid public health for the last year and a half or so i was part of that system that was involved and and in some ways this is a self-critique too because these are things that i i could have thought about better 
uh, and could have potentially done a little bit to, to change at least at the local level I was working at. So, you know, I, I don't want, I don't want the listeners to think, you know, I am pretending to be holier than thou. This is as much a self-reflection as, as it is on, on, on other folks who are involved too. It's always a learning curve, right? Absolutely. I can't help, I can't help but think though, that we didn't have 80 million Americans denying Katrina, you know? Well, we certainly had more than 80 million <clears throat> Americans criticizing the response to Katrina. Sure, mm-hmm. but but Katrina existed. Exactly, Katrina Katrina existed, but the political response, the political leaders involved in the Katrina response got heavily criticized, and a lot of people oh, had sure. a lot of their own ideas about how things could be done better. And so when the fight when it comes comes home and say, okay, well, if you all wear your masks and get vaccinated, you will not get COVID. Well, if that is speaking personally from your own personal experience if that does not line up with what you're seeing like if you don't know people who are getting covid you don't know people who are dying you don't know any families who've lost loved ones um then it's hard to relate that to your own personal experience whereas with anything involving people like you think about the most you know some of the some of the biggest reasons why i mean 9-11 hit so close to home because it literally hit home right? Uh, Katrina hit home, Sandy hit home, Benghazi hit our soldiers, Afghanistan hit our Marines, right? So it's much easier for people to get an, um, a grasp of what does it mean for someone whom I love or care about to be killed instantly, or for them to be severely injured, or for us to be attacked on a day, than it is to think about the long-term evolution of viruses and gradual exponential growth and transmission around the world that maybe shaves off some part of the population that I might or might not know, right? So much gray area, but you still have the politicians coming up and trying to make decisions and still have people wanting to criticize the politicians for whatever reasons, good, bad, neutral, uneducated, educated. So you can draw parallels and it is, it is important to kind of keep that in mind um, that the human experience lives on it's just that the circumstance, the human human nature has not changed. It's just that the circumstances right. of this disaster are drawn out and so different than what we're used to internalizing on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the frog boiling. We don't notice it. And we need to realize that this is an actual virus planet. I mean, there's more of them than there is of humans. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's like... Um, insects rule the world viruses rule the world man doesn't oh, we just need to learn how to live in there's it. an estimate so just to give the viewers a, uh, an idea of this so there's there's a, a one class of viruses that are believed to be the most abundant are called bacteriophages right literally bacteria eaters they're viruses that only infect bacteria they look like the little you've probably seen them whenever you think of a virus you think of a little like microscopic robot right that's a bacteriophage right that's kind of the classic mm-hmm. look to it right um the estimate is that there's about 10 to the 31 power um, uh, bacteriophages in the planet, which is 10 times 10 times 10 times 10 times 10 times 10, all the way to 31. So take 10, add 31 zeros. That's the number of one family of viruses on this planet that infects bacteria. That does not account for the viruses that infect humans, cows, fish, birds, frogs, Right. It's the, the microbial world is teeming with things that we, we 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 can't even possibly scratch the surface of how complicated it is. And to think that we are in control of it is 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 dangerous. It's hilarious. It's it's not just it's hilarious, hilarious, it's dangerous. Because now with and it kind of intersecting it with other uh, issues, climate change, right? As the planet mm-hmm. heats up, 
One major challenge has actually happened um, a few, there's there's Bissels and Thresis, which is the cause of aging of anthrax. There have been variants of that that have melted out of permafrost in the in the upper Yukon in Canada and, and in the boreal forests of Russia. Um, different right. strains of Clostridium perfringens have killed hundreds of thousands of deer in the steppes of Central Asia that have been, you know, emerged. You know, they're... As the climate warms, the the vectors of disease, the mosquitoes that carry Zika and West Nile, are moving further north. Right, infectious disease is, is you can't put it in a box. It's part of ecology. You have to understand that the, the global environment, and it's 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 really kind of scary when you think about it. And it is it is boiling a frog in many ways. You're boiling ten to the thirty one times ten to the fifteen frogs at once, and hoping that everything is going to be fine for the rest of humanity. Like eh, no no no, that's not right. But it's not some. It's not right to say, oh, someone's insane for thinking that because we don't think about that. We don't talk to the public about that. We don't engage people with that kind of knowledge nearly often enough. But we're very quick to deride people for not being on board with when we say that you guys should just listen to us because we know more. And they're like, prove it, which is a very fair response. Do prove it, Dan. Well, and that's the thing, like, <clears throat> like we kind of talked about earlier. It's like questioning the science, you know, questioning in science is important, but the idea of questioning science means that you have the ability and the cap you have the ability, the capability, and the skills to be able to question specifics. Me being a numbers person, I can question numbers because I know how to analyze them. I know how to look at where information's coming from and and make determinations on whether or not samples are biased or whether or not calculations were done correctly, whether or not the methodology makes sense. That doesn't mean that I have any ability to question, you know, like how your understanding of a virus. I'm the only, I, I just only know how to question the numbers. And so like this idea of questioning the science is great. Absolutely, we got to question the science nonstop, but we still have to have the abilities and the skills and uh, education and reasoning power to be able to question the specifics of it, not just say, well, I don't like that. So I'm going to call it mm -hmm. questioning and not follow it. Yeah, and I think the criticism in those when you talk about criticizing people who might, you know, disagree or question things without due process or without the right mm -hmm. notebook with the right background and the right experience, I think it's really easy to do a lot of lazy dismissal. Like, mm -hmm. oh, these people don't know what the hell they're talking about, just whatever. We're not gonna bother talking to them. Right. You have to articulate the sources of these issues, and it's really complicated. In some cases, it could be a hyper fundamentalist church that teaches that the COVID vaccine is the mark of the devil, right? Are all those people stupid and worthless and not worth talking to? No, they're they're human beings who deserve, you know, good health just like the rest of us. But you have to articulate the problem, which might be, you know, the 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 minister in charge or the culture behind that or, or things like that, right? You have to criticize that very articulately. If you have a, a, a concern about the political communication about the vaccines, which I'm sure anyone can point out a criticism, right? Because everyone's screwed it up somehow, right? You have, it's, oh, yeah. it's very easy to say, oh, the Democrats are just, <clears throat> Trump was stupid or the Republicans have no idea what they're talking about or Newsmax did that. You, you just, I, I know you guys can't see me, but I'm like waving my hands as I talk about that. If you can just like, <laughs> this, like Marie Antoinette let them eat cake it's easy mm -hmm. to do it's hard to engage in that nuanced criticism that you're talking about like you're going to i i feel qualified to criticize the numbers or critique the numbers or have questions about the numbers because i feel qualified about that that is a lot harder than just saying oh those guys are stupid now i'm gonna have a beer mm -hmm. right and move on it's amazing life. how many people have talked to me about something until they finally said something where it registers to me 
and they didn't give up on me. They just said it in a number of different ways until it could relate to me. So, and you're one of those people, Dan, I appreciate it on a, on a, on a subject similar to that. So YouTube has gone ahead and begun taking misinformation off of its site, which is fascinating. And we were flagged for COVID information. We were reviewed and they actually added a note to say, not only are we not misinformers, but we are actually an authority on it. And that's because of you. <laughs> and I really appreciate that because the moments we have talked about COVID, we have talked from a center perspective, not left, not right, just um people, science, and numbers. And I appreciate you both for being here for that. That's amazing. Um, I'm, I, that, 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 is a, that made my month, man. I know it's only the third, but yeah. still. No, it is really cool. And I think there needs to be more of us than there is of them. And I think we just, we got some numbers. We got some numbers where <laughs> we have a chance of winning. But do you think, we, do you think there's a chance of winning this war of mis- misinformation on COVID specifically? Um. We Americans love to talk about war and declare war on stuff as if it solves mm. the problem. War uh, on drugs. Exactly. War on drugs. There's no war on homelessness, says George Carlin. War on abortion. Yeah. Nope. I just brought that up. Why don't we hyper-focus on 550,000 homeless people until it's gone? Exactly, well, right? Well, I well, mean, if it's anything like the war on drugs, we're just going to end up with more drugs. Right, exactly. right. Yeah, right. I, I'm sure there's there's a lot of political commentary <laughs> down that rabbit hole, but I just right. I think it's interesting. We always talk about the war and misinformation. So there's there's wonderful classics, and it goes back to you know what I've learned in my my training in infectious disease. There's these wonderful classic mm. you know 18th century newspaper cartoons of when the original cowpox vaccine came out for smallpox. You know, where mm-hmm. Edward Jenner used cowpox, which is closely related. You give people cowpox a vaccine, and then that gives cross protection, right? And when he, when people were talking about the vaccine, there was these amazing cartoons of like people transforming into cows because they had cow injections brought in. It's like, so as long as there's been public health, as long as there's been vaccines, there's always been misinformation. Think about smoking. Think about alcohol. I mean, back when, back when they were trying to mandate seatbelts in cars, there was misinformation about people like choking to death. Right? You know, mm-hmm. it's a human. It's human nature to. And again, I'm not a psychologist, but you know, if anyone, if anyone has any alter like proof that i'm thinking otherwise please please correct me but it it's human nature to want to criticize and want to be right and so at some point it's easy just to slip into something that feels easy to understand it's like oh well the the vaccine is gene therapy and the government hates me because i don't like paying taxes right having that kind of logical fallacy going through right um so it's, it's easy to flip in, but as long as there's been public health, as long as there's been disease, there's been misinformation about disease and there's people who want to profit from it, right? Uh, like Joseph Merkula, right? Oh God, I hope he doesn't sue me for saying this. Uh, multi-million dollar um, businessman and pseudoscientist whack job who's made lots of money peddling anti-vaccine lies. And he, make, he has a pay-per-click blog that a lot of people subscribe to and he posts stuff that is verifiably false but it sounds good and he gets clicks and he gets money in his pocket so there's the there's the misinformation which is people just wanting to understand something that is simple or trying to digest the complicated world around them and then there's the profiteers and the frauds and the scammers that peddle that misinformation for their own personal gain and it's important for us to talk about those two groups very differently because if we're going to call this a war I'd rather declare war on the profiteers and declare humanitarian rescue on those who are getting profiteered from. 
right? Mm -hmm. And there's two different missions there. That makes yeah. sense. So let me ask you something um, in regards to boosters, because that's in the news as misinformation, but it, I think there, it can be resolved pretty easily. Um, Joe Biden came out and said we should get boosters. Um, the CDC said maybe not. The FDA said maybe in certain circumstances. And I don't think, I think people are basing it on a timeline as instead of like Jeffrey and I talked about the arc of antibodies. So are antibodies waning? Is that what we're looking for? And is there a way to determine your level of antibodies? Yeah. So, so I mean, again, I'm not a professional immunologist. I have a good amount of immunology training, but I'll, I'll try to, okay. I'll try to dis display this, right? Everyone talks about antibodies um, because there's kind of the, the thing that we're ta we talk about colloquially the most when it comes to immunology, immunology is way, mm -hmm. way, way more complicated than whether or not you just have antibodies, right? There's antibody-mediated right. responses by B cells. There's adapter T cell responses. There's all kinds of complicated stuff that um, that that goes on. Um, but immunology in general is a balance, especially when it comes, again, host pathogen interactions, like what I talked about earlier. It's always a balance between what the virus is doing, what the what the, the human response uh, immunity is built up to, right? So in some diseases, antibodies wane, some don't, some you have a fantastic response to, some you don't need a lot of antibodies to actually stimulate a strong enough response. And a lot of that is based on um, not just the, the people, but also the, on the virus itself, how quickly it mutates, how it infects the body, what kind of damage it does to your cells, how it can hijack the immune system, right? It's really complicated, for example, to have any kind of immune, like vaccine therapy for, or vaccine prevention for HIV because HIV hijacks the immune system. So there's all kinds of complexity that happens there. So um, antibodies can wane. Um, over time, for sure, the virus can also mutate so that the uh, the antibody virus binding or antibody cell binding that needs to happen is not it's, it's like it's it's like a lock and key mechanism, right? You kind of shake part right. of the lock or shave a part of the key it doesn't quite work so well. So um, it can happen over time. I think a lot of the the, the booster uh, conversation in general has been morphed by political opinion, and I don't want to get on a, on a huge you know soapbox about that but i thought it was telling that there was some hesitation by the scientific consensus of like not that it was unsafe but whether or not mm -hmm. it was necessary and then there was the the political and politically appointed leadership saying no these are necessary because there's a goal it comes again it comes down to messaging and, and goals right you know joe biden right. joe biden and the director of cdc dr rochelle walensky they want not just people to be safe from COVID. They want people to feel empowered that they are doing everything they can do to fight. They also might want a political win for themselves, right? I, I'm not trying to say that in a negative way. This is just trying to understand the humanity of the situation. So if sure. you're talking about having additional boosters, there's no evidence that it's harmful. There's no evidence that it, um, that at least for the vaccines that have been developed, there's no evidence that it will make you worse off. Uh, it's just a question of whether or not it's it's needed at this time because of that evolving balance of the host pathogen interactions. Do we have an, sufficient antibody binding at a high enough concentration? Are those antibodies waning over time or are they not? Is the virus mutating fast enough so that we need to have these boosters to overwhelm or mm. to compensate for the kind of the, the lack of a perfect lock and key mechanism? Because if you have more antibodies, you can kind of account, better account for the each antibody not being as perfectly tuned. So right. it's a comp it's complicated because on the immunology side, 
it doesn't hurt. Is it necessary? Your mileage may vary. On the political side, I can understand the motivation and I'm not, I'm not hateful or spiteful against political leaders for making the decisions that they did. Because inconclusive, they want to act. They have motivations for acting, but I, I don't think it's I don't think it's nefarious. I think it's they, right. they want they there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting the public to feel empowered that they're doing something to fight the pandemic, right? The the question is, you know, how are you gonna are you misleading them or are you making a decision based on evidence that's publicly available and saying, you know, we're on the fence, but we're gonna do this anyway. And being open and transparent about that. So that, that's kind of my thoughts on not just antibodies waning, but the booster question in general. Right. But it could be a large part of that was individual body responses to um, of ever changing virus. So there's two there's two sliding scales right there, and you need to talk to your physicians maybe about that. Yes, definitely. And I, I, that was that was a lot of the conversation, a lot of the messaging. So there's the, 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 the two lines that get you get on your push notifications on your phone from your favorite news source. And then there's the full releases of information. The right. full releases are all like, here's specific subgroups that were most likely do need a booster. Um, and even in the discussion about boosters, there are definitely some populations that could benefit it from it more, like people who are elderly, people who are immune compromised, right? There's, there's, exactly. there's frontline work. If you're able to, yeah, if you're able to t need a vac, if you need a vaccine because you are immune compromised, I mean, if there's, if the evidence is not a hundred percent clear of whether or not it will help you, but the evidence is clear that it won't harm you, I can understand mm -hmm. people in that demographic, you know, being encouraged to go get another booster because if it's not going to hurt you. It might help. It could help. But then, then the nuance of which subgroups are supposed to get it. And, you know, all of this gets lost behind the, you know, someone wants to take a swing at Joe Biden or someone wants to have right. a two-line news push. Some some news source wants to be the first person to publish, entity to publish something. And so they put exactly. out an incomplete story. Or the FDA, you know, tasked writer A instead of writer B for the press release, and they decided to phrase a particular thing differently, right? Mm -hmm. So all these nuances just get lost in this discussion, and I feel that's a that's a societal issue that we don't like nuances often as, as much as we should. Well, and then one of the things that, you know, I remember you know, that I was reading about too was is that, you know, when you look at the different vaccines, you know, the vaccines were developed different ways, and one of the things that uh, for example, Moderna went for maximum antibody production, where Pfizer, when they created their dosing, they were looking to minimize side effects of, of the vaccine. And so one of the questions that has come up that I've seen is, is that, you know, Moderna's protection doesn't seem to wane over time the way that Pfizer's has. But at the same time, too, most of what they're seeing waning for Pfizer most of those populations weren't of concern anyways. Most of those populations were going to be healthy. They still they still have antibodies within their systems. Like you said, it's just the the issue of who's most at risk, the elderly, the frontline workers, um, the immunocompromised. And even like the frontline workers one seemed to have been more of a hot button issue where there was this idea that health professionals didn't need to get it versus they did and it seemed to get overridden and i'm not sure if that was more of a political decision or a hey we're already at capacity so the idea of losing any capacity because uh the efficacy you know the the effectiveness has waned over time 
we probably want to account for that in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and I think the operative term there is or, right? Either or. A lot of the discussion about vaccines in general has has kind of descended into like either this or that. Does the vaccine work or does it not? Is COVID right. gone? Is it not? Is this pandemic over or is it not? It's complicated. And so when when the way Jeffrey, like the way you brought that up was it was was really I'm glad that you you discussed it in the way that you did, which is there were some political components or was it, you know, science based? Was there some evidence that was needed? It's it's not clear because all of those factors were, were played have played a played a role, right? You can talk about the different types of the pros and cons of the different vaccines and what Pfizer and Moderna's end goals, you know, top of end goals, what the end goals for them were. Um, and what we want out of the pandemic as a whole. But when you try to descend this whole conversation into like, okay, should I or should I not get the vaccine? Should I or should I not wear a mask? Should I like the binary nature is again one of the major reasons why we're having such a difficult time relating to the public because there's nothing binary about a virus, right? Does the virus infect or does it not? Well, it only infects certain types of cells depending on what the type you're you have this subtype of receptor A, right? You lose people, right? And it's it's understandable because it's so hard to condense these issues into something digestible because it's it's impossible to give this issue the nuance it deserves in one sentence. Absolutely, and especially when you're people aren't general. People aren't general. They're they're all individual, and things affect them differently. Sorry, John. Oh yeah, no, and and especially when you know you're trying you're trying to help people understand what does what does affecting people look like. You know, normally when we think about a vast multitude of diseases. We have this preconceived notion that it's, you know, this subgroup of people, it's old people, it's immunocompromised people, it's people who mm. are obese. But what we're finding with this virus is, is you've got perfectly healthy people that are passing away while you've got people who are, you know, in all of these comorbidities that you would normally consider most likely to go. There are the ones there, you've got people there that are surviving terrible cases of the virus, but people who were completely healthy gone within a week. And, you know, that being able to explain that to people has, I think, been one of the more difficult things in that the predictability of the virus seems to be a lot less predictable than what we've been used to. And being able to scientifically explain why it's affecting populations the way that it is, why we don't have necessarily the clearest picture on, you know, who's who's getting it, who's dying from it. Why is it this group of people right now versus another group of people with the last variant? I think you know people are getting frustrated with the fact that they they see the virus, they see it like like the goalposts are moving when it's the virus has evolved. So yeah, in a way, the goalposts have moved, but it's not because it's not necessarily because of political movement. It's because the virus itself actually changed. And now we're having to learn what what the goalposts are for this particular variant. You're absolutely right. Isn't it, yeah, I, isn't science constantly moving a goalpost though? Shouldn't you want it to have more information the more we learn about it? Well, it depends on what you mean by the goalpost, right? So in some cases, you want well, you don't want the principles of Education. you don't want the principles of science for the goalpost moved, right? You want scientists to act with integrity. You want them to have good research mm -hmm. ethics. You want them to you want the peer reviewed studies to be criticized fairly. You want people to be reporting data honestly not defrauding you know having all those things in place it's important to have those things right. uh, it's important to have those things i'm sorry i have poppy just came onto my couch um, <laughs> go away um 
Uh, she's really cute. Um, Knowledge is an evolution, <laughs> yeah. though, is what I'm Yeah, so the, the, the principles of science it. are important to keep in there, but the knowledge will, mm -hmm. will move. Unfortunately, when it comes to folks who... Jeff, do you have just a puppy issue as well? Yes, Hi. I have a puppy issue. This is, this is <laughs> Billy. Billy. Hi, Billy. <laughs> Hello, handsome boy. Um, but what happens is for folks who aren't really steeped in the scientific culture, and it really is a culture mm -hmm. more than, as justice as a profession... When they see the goalposts moving, they also they 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 think that maybe the scientists are just trying to account for, you know, maybe they were they were kind of wrong before. And now they're trying to continue to be right, right? Because right. that's a very political like politics. Politicians love to do that too, um, like move those goalposts. And it comes down to the fact that, um, and at least this is speaking personally, going back to that middle school, high school science class. Science to most people who take a science class is a bunch of facts about the world that you need to memorize and regurgitate onto a test, right? right. Whereas it's it's static. it's static truth, facts. Right. Reality right, is that right. science is a process. It's the it's the the method and the protocols and the ideas and the the the, the things that the goalposts say true is the process. But we don't mm -hmm. teach process; we teach product in school because it's easier to put into a standardized test. And so right. when you have millions and millions of people whose only kind of familiarity with science is that like memorization, there is an answer. And then you present them with an issue where people who are trying to speak the best truth that they can based on the best available evidence, get things kind of right, and then have to change their answers as more evidence becomes available. It's no wonder mm -hmm. there's this incompatibility, right? And again, it comes down to how we're teaching science, how we're how we're doing outreach, how we're engaging with the public to make sure that before something happens, the preventative measure of saying, you know, this is what needs to be, this is how, what science is in reality. Like behind every single right. answer we give you is a process and a debate and a discussion. And because all of this is being scrutinized so heavily in the public eye, you know, these are things, you know, host pathogen interactions for viruses, people spend their whole careers understanding one subtype of one interaction between virus right. A and, and one type of host, right? People and that's based on the, the subjects that you can examine, right? The more cases you have, the more knowledge you have. If you have one case of COVID, you assume that it's one way. It's killing in one way. Exactly. If yes. you have a hundred, you can learn more. Yeah. And that's as you get further out to the population level, you can start having more one sentence answers. And that's the importance of, you know, one of the aspects of science is like having good data collection, right? And why we listen yeah. to or pay attention more mm -hmm. to the meta analyses of 3 million patients um, <laughs> than we do about a single case report about a weird thing that happened with one person. But because right. the personal experience is more relatable to most people, that is what kind of jars you. Because when you talk about one person, what's, you know, I'm not trying to praise Stalin in any way, um, but he, what was the thing Stalin. he says? Like one, a one, a one single death is a tra is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. Right. Right. The, the metaphor for that being, you can relate to that one person at the other end of the case report. You can't relate to the population of three million anonymous people who participated in a trial to answer a broad facing question about whether or not there's generally more or generally less risk at a population level. That's hard for people to relate to, but that's what we have to do when making policy decisions that affect 350 million Americans. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> so we have this study from the UK that I actually wanted to get you to talk about about more of a the long symptoms of covid the long haulers and they're saying that the people they're examining are fine they're finding organ damage 
at least one organ damaged in everyone that they've examined. And how do you know that? How do you know it wasn't from before? How do you know that this is because of COVID? And what are some other things we should be looking out for? I want to scare people into getting the vaccine by letting them know that there's possibilities things could go wrong if they don't. Scared? Oh, man. I'm a, I'm a new ones boy, right? It's, it's October. It's Halloween. Let's scare them straight. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> that's the thing is like, if you, if you, if you give people fear and then they feel that it wasn't worth being afraid of, that just sows distrust. Okay. Um, gotcha. But generally talking about long COVID, yeah, it is something that we're just barely able to understand Right, the chronic, the chronic complications of COVID just because we're in less than two, well, barely into two years since this virus likely, you know, started breaking into the mm -hmm. population in, uh, in Hubei province in China. Um, wow, two years. Um, but again, these kinds of diseases, like I mentioned earlier, these are individual scientists careers someone could spend 30 years studying you know one type of disease whether infectious or like melanoma or some type of kidney disease like those are entire careers that people sink their teeth into and only make some progress on so when it comes to long covid you know there are these observational studies there is kind of statistically significant enrichment of this organ damage in people who had covid and then reported long-term symptoms of covid but then in order to understand that more, we need to study more. Okay, how do the vi like what did this did this virus directly infect someone's kidney or liver, or was there That's kind of systemic know, damage? Right. Was there kind of a, a cro an antibody cross reactivity autoimmune response? You know, all these nuanced questions, and we just the science needs time to understand all of that. But right now, all we have right now are these cross sectional observational studies, and by cross sectional, I mean like point in time right there's you know you can have prospective studies where you like study a group of people in your part who are participating over time there's retrospective mm -hmm. studies where you like have a group of data that you look back in time and cross-sectional which is like in there's someone in a point in time you get information from them right and how those studies contribute to science also messes with the question so if this is a cross-sectional study of like hey they have this organ damage and they have long code previously that doesn't really explore that that might start to show an association but until you track people for a long period over time and really start to understand the symptoms that they get and the diseases and conditions they get at, over time as they evolve that takes a long time for and a lot of money and a lot of effort from a lot of people in order to get that valuable information so in terms of scaring people we shouldn't be scaring people we should be informing them Long COVID is a thing. Long COVID, we know we have sufficient information that COVID for some people is not just a, a week or 10 day cold and you move on with your life. Um, it's not just something that you get asymptomatically and then pass on to somebody else and it's not really your problem anymore. There are long-term consequences to this and also from acute disease as well as chronic disease. We're getting more information. It's more and more evidence that people should get vaccinated for a lot of reasons, mainly about protecting yourself from the virus. And I could get into more detail about that. There's a lot of really good evidence coming out to support vaccination, but we need more time to understand these processes as they evolve quite literally um, and get more evidence. And unfortunately for science, that takes years. We're just not used to having to answer to the public on such a broad scale so immediately about so many questions at once and we're just not equipped to answer all those questions at once no and, and, and absolutely correct you know and the fact of the matter is is that even when we're able to finally uh, form you know something that we can say to people 
we're usually having to battle social media at that point. And, you know, the sound, the sound bites from pundits and politicians and, and news sources. And so, like, I think, like, kind of one of those things that you've gone back to is, is that our ability to message has just been, well, asked for the lack of a better term. We're just not able to get the same level of quick, easy messaging out to the population that, you know, we've seen spread through social media. You're absolutely right. And that's something that, again, because that takes time to instill in people and the, the appreciation for that value, right? Social media has been around for a while, a hot minute, right? And mm-hmm. people have reckon, people who recognize the most successful marketers are those or the, the largest companies that have you know built themselves in social media, including the social media companies themselves, are those who recognize early, hey, this is what the potential can be. And let's have a five to 10 year plan to build this out, right? Science does not have a five to 10 year plan on how it's going to evolve its communication about COVID. Science does not have a five to 10 year plan about how we're going to train more science communicators who are not just well-versed in the science, but also well-versed in public outreach. Science does not have a five to 10 year plan on how we're going to get more people out of the lab and value the importance of getting more people into the public eye to answer those difficult nuanced questions and to get people thinking about the process of science like we've talked about before. When you don't have a long-term plan, you're not going to have a good solution. That's just the reality of no matter what discipline you're in, you be it like military operations to business planning and entrepreneurship to just running a school. Like if you don't have a long-term plan and a mission and a goal, there's, there's no end in sight, right? You don't have a clear definition. So I think that's something that science needs to learn from is that we, as we publish these studies, we also, if not more so need to be telling the public, there's going to be a lot of studies coming out. Right. People are still studying and making careers off of studying the 2009 H1N1 pandemic flu because Mm -hmm. all kinds of viral stocks that exist. And it's a pretty standard, you know, basis for studying influenza. Now, everyone and their dog who's in the field has a bunch of vials of that that they thaw out of their freezer and study by passaging in cells and seeing what happens. Right. COVID is going to be a reality in science for the next forever. So we Mm -hmm. start messaging. COVID is going to be a reality in science for the next forever. And we're going to be having these long, this is a whole new field of science that's been created and nobody's really telling people that. That's a really serious challenge that we have. It's like, this is going to continue. As COVID continues, we're going to continue studying it. And people are going to make a lot of impact over a long-term career because COVID's not going away. And as COVID's not going away, the hospitalizations and deaths are going to continue Every year people die from the flu. Every year people die from other viruses. It's something we need to be prepared for. And science needs to get on its horse to start talking about how and where and when it's going to intercede and where it's going to provide those updates, not just giving the updates themselves out of a blue and not giving people context on how to interpret the information. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and I think that's one of the things that we're going to have to start telling people to is, is how do you make a game plan as a family, you know, in order to, to keep this up? I mean, I don't know that we necessarily had that level of uh, this level of information or thought process and how do you deal with this? And like, for example, a public health, public school setting, like something that's a very real uh, issue for all of us where you've got, you know, school-aged children five to 11 who can't get the vaccine yet but you know like here for example one of our schools is remote for the next two weeks because they have an outbreak 
Good. So the question becomes, you know, what is it, what do families need to do in order to game plan for what this pandemic is going to continue to look like until we no longer call it a pandemic? And I think, you know, number one is going to be, you know, what does, you know, what does your vaccination plan and home health plan look like? What are things you can do at home to make sure that you still have a fighting chance until, like we've talked about, this thing, you know, gets to a form that's less, less lethal and we're not constantly wondering if hospitals are going to have a bed for a person if they absolutely need it. Yeah, I think I think it more, even more fun. Your all the questions, all the points that you've raised are exceptionally on point and things we all need to be discussing. But I think there's a more fundamental point that needs to be digested by the public before we have any of those discussions, and that is the reality that this is not the first time this has happened. Uh, in terms of a major public health crisis, like the 1918 flu pandemic, all kinds of different things. The reality is that whenever something like this happens, we never go back to normal. There's always a new normal. There's a readjustment. There's what we're going to be facing moving forward is not going to be the same as what we had before, right? Back thinking back to the history of uh, you know the 1918 pandemic. After that kind of subsided, there was a massive injection of funding at the federal and state level to start caring about public health. And a lot of the public right. infrastructure that we have today is is due to funding and investment that happened. The federal government took note. There was more legislation that was passed in terms of structure. Uh, su- very important Supreme Court rulings about the cans and cannot or do's and do nots of public health practice all kinds of research became available and 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 that 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 changed our society after the second world war i mean you know after the discovery of penicillin um and the second world war penicillin became very widely available because it was shipped over to the the, war, the um the allies in such large quantities because of all the infections that people were getting uh, soldiers were getting in combat that it became once the war effort stopped we now had antibiotics that fundamentally changed the way that we treated all kinds of health right and going through these decades the questions you're at raising about how are we going to manage remote work how are we going to manage you know people being home from school how are we going to manage isolation and quarantine do we need to continue isolating and quarantine once we get a, you know, a vaccine regimen in are we going to be concerned about the evolution of the virus how's that's going to continue all these things have to come we have to ask those questions we have to be willing to engage in those discussions but there first has to be an acceptance that we're not going back to a early 2020 before looked like this is going to be a new normal we are in a new society we have changed if just as much as we did after 9-11, just as much as we did after World War II, just as much as we did after the 1918 pandemic, right? Society will continue to move forward. We need to accept that and then start asking those questions. And that's a really hard pill to swallow if, again, you're in some country town where you don't really know anyone who's gotten COVID and you don't want the world to change because life's kind of good for the way you see it. You know, it's hard to get that message through. Absolutely. And, and, and realistically speaking, it's, you know, it's going to be one of those things where we're, we're, our messaging is going to have to adjust like you've talked about, and we're just going to have to get used to, you know, the fear mongers on any side of the political spectrum being willing to ship us doom and gloom in any part and figuring out how do you minimize those voices. Realistically speaking, this thing's going to be a lot more manageable Uh, in in time. It will be a lot more manageable, you know, but not gone, not gone, gone. never gone, you know, and, the new normal, like Dan says, is going to be, you know, whatever your individual risk assessment looks like, 
you know, at some point it's going to be masks off. At some point it's going to be back to sitting down in a restaurant, eating around people. At some point it's going to be back mm-hmm. to large family gatherings and concerts. And our, you know, our evaluation of the risks individually are going to change. Some people are going to be willing to, you know, take, well, they, they're not going to see it as a risk. And, and some people won't see it as a risk because they're vaccinated. Some people won't see it as a risk because, whatever else and the reality is going to be that everybody's risk calculation is going to be different and we're just going to have to accept that you're just going to have to learn how to minimize and mitigate for your own risks and and what that looks like and then policymakers needing to be aware of how to look at the larger level and say what is the balance of risk mitigation with public inconvenience that's always been the fundamental question of public health policy and public health law right that balance mm-hmm. between i mean public health policy is restrictions on public freedoms that are deemed necessary to prevent people from dying needlessly right that's just the, the baseline definition of it that's always been the, right. the battle we go back even uh, obviously we you know go back to the 18th century with the united states but way way before you know the whole point of quarantine like the quarantine was initially instant it was a genoa or milan or venice right ships from uh the the middle east and from the near east were quarantined for 40 days quarantine right stay in place for 40 days off coast to let any diseases run their course mainly smallpox Mm. before the sailors were allowed to board the ships or to come off the ships and come to land so public health policy has been in place as long as people have known that diseases are a thing and it's always been a battle between what are people's rights and privileges to make the individual decisions that they want and the the necessity of government to step in when the greater good needs to be protected and because of everyone's individual beliefs you know politically that's 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 a different balance for everyone is going to have a different you know a set of opinions on that and so we need to have policymakers who understand that that is going to continue to battle and continue to prioritize public health, because I guarantee you, I mean, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I will bet my life savings that before I am gone from this planet, barring some serious traffic accident or something, that we will have a much, 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 much worse pandemic than we did from COVID. It's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like the US Geological Survey, not allowing its drivers, its members to drive on uh, elevated highways in the Bay Area around San Francisco, because they know a major earthquake is going to hit. It's the same thing. We know another major pandemic is going to hit sometime in the future, sometime in, uh, in living memory. So what lessons can we draw forward from this? A lot of that has to happen at the policy table. It's not just scientists siloed in labs you know, in the disaster movies, making giving people warnings that are ignored. Scientists need to break out of that and say, engage with policymakers, and policymakers need to be listening. So that's kind of the major message that we need to think of in this new normal is this needs to be incorporated into our mainstream kind of structure as a, as a society that we can prepare and kind of converse in on a regular basis. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I love that. Do you think that... You, you say there's going to be a, another bigger pandemic, but do you think this one was as big just because of the response that we 
initially had? I mean, did it only get big because we ignored it? It could have been so much worse. We could have had, That's could my, have had okay. millions and millions of Americans dead if we didn't have the initial shutdown. Right. Okay. Think of, so think of it this way. We know that the vaccines work really well. We know that people are going back to normal. I mean, I'm, I'm starting to go, my life is starting to go back to, I don't want to say back to normal, right. like have a new normal where I'm, I'm careful. My friends, I'm, I'm not, if I, have a, mm -hmm. if I ever get the sniffles, I'm not going out for a while. I'm going to go get tested, right? All those new things. But speaking personally, I am making some of those decisions to spend time with friends who might also know are vaccinated and being responsible. And as, right. as I evolve that out. Right. But think, a lot if we know the vaccines are there we know that people are making some people are making more responsible decisions now but we're still kind of opening up we're still seeing the surge in cases with delta um imagine what right. would have happened if we just didn't shut down right mm -hmm. think of the death toll that we're facing now all that stuff about flattening the curve you know what is it idaho and alberta canada are now doing um triage like yep. you know, scarcity right. treatment of their patients like they're not even like like every every patient coming in is a DNR and like again I don't know all the details so people fact check me on that but those no, yeah. that could have been completely what was happening in New York City could have been the entire country at once if we did not shut down yeah. right okay. so and the shutdown was absolutely devastating right millions of people left not just lost their jobs but left the workforce it caused a massive recession the stock market went crashing down right we had these major systemic issues now what are we as a society going to do knowing that there could be something that's 10 times worse with an actual mortality rate of like 10% as opposed to like the 0.5 to 0.9% that people estimate for COVID? How are we going to prepare for that? What kind of systems are we going to have in place to make sure that we can actually continue to function as a society and not be crippled for decades by something really severe? Because back in, back in, um, in 1918, I'm in Pittsburgh, and there was the pit, some of the Pittsburgh earliest Pittsburgh trolleys were converted into corpse carts, where people would just like leave their dead family members out on the sidewalks, and the corpse cart would come pick them up. Like how you do, and now right. the way how complicated and integrated our society is. Like if that happened, if that was a reality, how would we survive a society? Right? We need to start right. asking those questions now, and that has to be people stepping up and saying, "Look." This, this, this was a dress rehearsal. The next big one is on the horizon. We thought this was the next big one. In some ways it was, in some ways it definitely wasn't. And we need to be prepared for that. So, I mean, I'm not trying to inspire fear, like I mentioned earlier, but no. maybe that's something that our listeners can, can consider is like, what kind of leaders do we want in our country who are going to acknowledge that fact and be prepared for it? What kind of leaders right. are going to want to start integrating public health discussions more into policymaking? How is that going to affect our economic policy, our social policy? Because we need to be prepared for that reality that's going to happen eventually. Um, and, and we need to be taught. The first step is talking about it, but people need to be thinking about it and engaged with that, you know, hard, like that uncomfortable idea. I don't want to say an inconvenient truth, but <laughs> it does right. come to mind that phrase. I got you. So claiming it's false isn't our way out of it. Planning ahead is. Yeah, don't uh, don't ask, don't ostracize the situation. This is only going to get worse. <laughs> right. I wanted to ask you about um, Mer uh, Merck created a new pill that hopefully disrupts COVID. Did you? Yeah. Do you know anything about that? Because yeah. I really would like to finish up on therapeutics. If that's Absolutely, okay. yeah. So there's a fundamental. Before we go into the details of this, I mean, because obviously mm -hmm. this this is integrated into the, the ongoing, you know, sentiments about hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and all these other drugs, right? Oh, and nebulizing hydrogen peroxide. Don't oh yeah, and and and, drink, and drinking bleach. Um, 
Right. Oh yeah. Injecting bleach. Yeah. Injected. All that great stuff, right? Um, <laughs> oh my god. Sorry. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But here's but there is therapeutics that work, and I think I we should steer people to those if we so can. we should. I think it's important to, before we go into that discussion to talk about the fundamental difference in philosophy between vaccines and therapeutics, right? Vaccines are designed fundamentally to prime your immune system to be able to take care of a virus itself by itself once you have um, been exposed, right? And exposure means you are technically, some of your cells are infected, right? You're like, as mm -hmm. soon as virus gets into your body, it's, it's start, it, it could get in, right? Exposure, it's not like you go from exposure to, oh my God, you're sick, right? There's a process of some cells in your body getting infected, right? But vaccines right. are designed to stimulate an immune response that suppresses the amount of virus that your body can make by being able to quickly respond, to detect and respond to an infection. A therapeutic like the one, the drug that Merck just um, popularized, I, I don't even remember the name. It's some, there's some standard naming system for viruses. So Avir, like that suffix is like, you know, antiviral. Um, anything like MAB, something that the technical name ends with MAB is a monoclonal antibody. And then like Humab, H-U-M-A-B is a human monoclonal antibody. Mumab is a mouse. Zumab is a different type of, you know, there's all kinds of standard definitions. So there's a, the vaccines that are designed to stop or to quickly recognize and nip in the bud an infection by your own immune system working for itself. And the therapeutics, your immune system can't handle it. You get really sick. You have a very high viral load. And then you in, ha add something to your body to try and help your, your immune system catch up. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty obvious which one is preferable. Right. Um, the vaccines are always having a good vaccine is always a better bet um, than mm -hmm. having a good therapeutic. Because, first of all, if you have a vaccine, if you can keep that viral load low, then there's less of a, less of a chance of you, you know, pushing virus out into the environment and infecting other people. There's also less of a chance of you getting severely ill and there's less of a chance of you needing additional medical care. Um, right. but when you have a therapeutic, you've already probably at the point where you've exposed somebody else and you're already at the point where you probably need some kind of substantial intervention where you're really down for the count and need a lot of help. So something to keep in mind there, all that having been said, so this therapeutic is a nucle is a nucleoside analog and I need to look into more of it, but there's different ways that the, um, that the, uh, antiviral drugs work. Um, but all of them mess with your cells. Because viruses, mm -hmm. the way that viruses reproduce is they infect your cells and they hijack them to be little factories for viruses, right? They're not like mm -hmm. bacteria where bacteria can, some bacteria live inside your cells, different story, but most of them will grow out like in your body, but outside your cellular tissue and cause like a large mass of stuff that like causes a big problem, right? Viruses right. use your cells directly. And that's why you have very few antiviral drugs on the market to begin with, right? Antibiotics, we have a bunch of them different conversation for another day because you can actually design drugs to just kill the bacteria because bacteria are fundamentally different from us in many ways. So you can design a drug that like kills a bacteria, but not our cells. There's no way to design an antiviral drug that doesn't go into your cells, right? You, you have, it has to go into your cells. It has to mess with the, the replication, the cellular machinery that you have, because that's what the virus is using. And so you have like this nucleoside or nucleotide analogs that are designed to literally stop or, or throw a monkey wrench into the engines that make your cells DNA and RNA, right? That's not a good thing. You like that? There's always side effects to that. Um, there's also other, there's other variants that maybe you can stop binding or anything by 
talk, you know, blocking like receptors in your cells. But again, that's working on your cells, stopping them from working properly. So therapeutics are useful. Um, They, they have a place, obviously remdesivir has saved like countless lives um, uh, in hospital settings. Um, Hydroxychloroquine obviously didn't pan out. Ivermectin, a huge debate. This one, could be a useful addition to the arsenal for people who don't want to uh, to get a vaccine or who do get vaccinated and get very sick in that rare case. But it's something to keep in mind is that the 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 therapeutic is essentially it's useful, but in some ways it is a really potent poison for your own cells. Where you it's kind of like like chemo in a way. Like chemo yeah. works by killing your own cells and the cancer, right? Right. But antiviral drugs work by messing with your cells to stop the virus there's always there's there's always collateral damage with a vaccine Mm. the level of collateral damage for a well-designed vaccine is always going to be lower than that of an antiviral drug so something to keep in mind when you're like if you're hesitant to get a vaccine but you really want to get this new antiviral from merck that goes inside your cells and messes with your cellular machinery right your DNA, yeah, right. yeah. Well, main not. I'm not sure about DNA in this case, but some some DNA viruses okay. you have antivirals that will mess with your DNA replication machinery, right? So it can get messy. This one probably RNA, but still, mm-hmm. right? It it gets it gets messy in there. And so yeah. and these and, are short term solutions too. These are not long term. Mm-hmm. These are like you're you're down for the count. This is something that you're needing in order to address the situation now, and it's not something you're staying on, and it's not something that's going to give you long lasting protection. Absolutely, right. it's not long lasting protection. And by the time you've already gotten the therapeutic, you're probably exposed somebody else to the virus. And mm-hmm. the 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 it's like the the standard dose for this is like 800 milligrams as 800 milligrams of a, like a a, a nucleoside inhibitor. That messes with wow. your machinery as opposed to like what is it like 0.3 micrograms of mrna in the vaccine dose right like the your the sheer volume and they talk about like the same thing with like the regeneron therapeutics that ron DeSantis was peddling it's like the other thing right. is that merck is applying this data these data for an emergency use authorization the regeneron therapeutics that are developed are different different science but still emergency use authorization right why are you lapping up an eua drug that is way more potent and potentially toxic to your body than you are to a vaccine which is either fda approved or has been authorized and out for months and months with lots of evidence showing that it's safe that has a lower Mm -hmm. dose of whatever it's giving you offers longer term protection and prevents the problem from happening in the first place right i'm glad you said that so i'm really glad you so good good on merck for offering another tool in this fight I applaud them. Well done. I hope it gets authorized as long as the data show up, hold up. But it's important to keep in mind that this is not a replacement for vaccines and that vaccines are the superior option. Always, it's, it's, it's what's the old adage? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Hmm. Yep. Perfect. And you said that the ivermectin, that's a, that's a big debate. That's not a big debate, right? Ivermectin isn't something that we want to use against COVID? Yeah, so there's... <sighs> I I'm not. I don't. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to talk about. I, oh oh it. no! <laughs> can we just say I, don't so, use it? So there's there's the don't use the freaking veterinary horse horse ivermectin, please. Like that's that's not yes, right. Right, right. Don't right. don't don't dip into your 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 local farmer's stash of you know nematode killer. Um, but there is there there is some evidence out there. It's mixed about whether or not like human formation of ivermectin might or might not work. The jury's kind of out. And so my personal opinion on ivermectin is that like 
we should continue to study it in the human dosage. But again, it comes out to this messaging of someone comes out, ivermectin is the new next great thing. You can go to Petco and get it for three bucks a pound. And that's, mm. it's just like, it's like, okay. And these same people were like yelling at the millennials for doing the Tide Pod challenge, right? right. Um, so it comes down to like, when used properly and studied properly, I don't think the evidence is as conclusively bad. I mean, there's the okay. ivermectin project, which does has have some RCTs, randomized controlled trials that show that it could potentially be effective. But again, how does that come into practice? Well, if you're just going to have the veterinary, you know, formulation, which is not the same, if you're just going right. to self dose instead of going to a doctor, if the doctor is going to you know prescribe without understanding the mecha the mechanics of that drug, or if you're going to rely on that even though it's not even authorized, not even approved, not even reviewed by the FDA, not even recommended by the FDA, as opposed to a vaccine that has gone through multiple rounds of retrospective right. reviews and peer-reviewed studies and all this stuff. Like the evidence of vaccination is so much, is, is, it's much more robust, a lot more, and hundreds of millions of people have gotten the vaccine. So we have kind of the test group that we're already studying and showing that it's, it's yeah. effective. So again, good to have antiviral drugs good to have that as part of our, our arsenal. But prevention mm -hmm. is so much more valuable and the vaccines are fundamentally a protective and preventative tool. So that's why I will always yeah. recommend the vaccines over just relying on it. Now, if you're sick and you need it, don't don't yeah. don't take this advice like oh don't get the drug right but right. always always opt to get a vaccine over just hoping that the cure might work for you. Yeah. I think people are working overtime to avoid a vaccine when you could just be done like i got the vaccine i don't worry as much i still care about who's surrounding me but in my daily life i don't need to protect myself in a lockdown scenario like i like i did the vaccine has helped me and there's people that are actually working to avoid the vaccine and they're they're hurting themselves to do it just to prove a point that they don't need the vaccine just get the vaccine yeah and there are and there's but there's also lots of people who are still worried about the vaccine because they've heard horror stories or they're not they're concerned about the whole process and trying to you know make sure that when those people come to those of us who care with those kind of concerns like I've, I don't want to get the vaccine because I've heard this really messy thing and I, I, I wanting to come from that place of like vulnerability, learning, doubt, concern. Yeah. Those are people that we should be engaging with and trying to get really reliable evidence of listening to the concerns and showing that we're valued. Again, talking about what I mentioned before about like having a war on misinformation, right? You can you can vi viciously attack the peddlers of false if of false information right. who profit, the people who who, who promote it, but the people who no. listen to it and have their concerns take a humanity humanity first approach right you got to you got to treat Please. these people with respect because their concerns and their doubts are exceptionally valid they deserve to be treated with respect and that is how we're going to make progress in this pandemic is treating people with that dignity that they inherently deserve absolutely and i find that the best way that i've been able to help people figure out what they need to do next you know i've uh, i've got some i've got a friend who's been struggling because <clears throat> you know on one side they had a sister get bell's palsy from getting the vaccine that absolutely happened i mean everything has an inherent risk but on the other side also had a family member damn near died because she was unvaccinated and they they had to life flight her uh, eventually and 
she's scared because you know on one side you know she's seen a reaction that a family member's had and on the other side she's seen someone almost die and talk about how it's the worst thing that they've ever experienced and the reality is is, is that facebook is not a substitute for going and talking to your doctor about your concerns and getting right. actual information doing tests to see if you actually are somebody who can get the vaccine medical exemptions need to be something that we really need to look into for people who really can't get the vaccine because that's why we all got vaccinated to begin with before this whole covid thing ever came around we knew that there were people that were never going to be able to get the vaccine and our as part of our societal responsibility was making sure that we created as few vectors as possible for those people who were compromised uh the so that way they didn't get sick. And that's still fundamentally the same thing as it is today. You know, the vaccines, are they perfect? Absolutely not. Not a single one of them has been. There are always going to be inherent risks. It's just that what is your level of risk exception? Is it going to be ending up dead in a hospital? Or is it going to be, you know, potentially having a side effect from a vaccine? And the best way that you can get yourself into a place of being able to make a decision, talk to your doctor. Well said. Well said. Yeah. There's 7 billion people. There's one vaccine. So well, there's three know, vaccines. The there's are, three vaccines. The, ver- <laughs> the three, maybe four soon. Hopefully. The, the variables are in the humans, not really the vaccine I, as much. You know actually, I, mean? I stand corrected. It's like 15 vaccines. <laughs> is there already yeah i mean Holy cow. yeah we talk about sinopharm and astrazeneca and all, all the other ones and russia's version so oh, but but That's point great. point well taken is that there's there's there is this amazing tool there are these amazing tools out there it's important for us to use those tools properly and the first step of that is humanizing the problem that they're designed to solve so yeah i love yeah. it Thanks for being here. Of Dan. course. Thank you so much. And congratulations on such a huge milestone for your episodes. And, you know, mm. feel free to, to message me if you guys want me to be back and talk more about COVID stuff or non-COVID stuff. I'm very happy yep. to support the show. And I'm super proud of all the uh, the hard work you guys have put into to put together such a great show that's that's run for so long and had such success. So my my I tip my metaphorical cap to you because I'm, I'm not wearing any hat by now, but still. Well done. Thank bravo, you, bravo. And you're invited back next week in the week wonderful all right well thank well i want to get to a, before we leave i want to get to a broader conversation about vaccines instead of just covid you oh yeah know what i mean like like we used to have those conversations and now we're hyper focused on one one situation but you know what about shingles and what about measles oh, yeah. and all these other things so Every... we need to attack the anti-vaxxers at some point beyond just COVID. absolutely so the and again talking about the anti-vaxxers versus the vaccine hesitant and those people are very different mm-hmm. like the people who are actively spreading yeah. misinformation and not willing to engage in meaningful discourse versus those who are concerned because they've heard some stuff right and you know vaccines yeah. have been a vital tool for our progress as a society they've They've stopped us from small. They've they've they eradicated mm-hmm. smallpox. They damn near erad- they have eradicated polio from um, our population. They've effectively eradicated rabies from our house pets. Um, they've been yeah. they've they're, they're we've effectively r- nullified so many other diseases. It's a it's a con- it's a constant method throughout modern history of us to be able to live society as we take it for granted now. And this is this whole COVID scare has been 
uh, an important kind of dress, again, I say dress rehearsal, but an important reminder of what can happen if we do have a devastating disease that we don't have a good preventive, preventive measure for. Because scientists have been working so hard behind the scenes for so much time to make sure something like this doesn't happen. But here's the thing, right. we're gonna fail. We've, we're, we failed mm -hmm. with COVID. We failed with every new disease that's gonna come out. There's gonna be something way worse than COVID that's gonna come out by whatever means you know, in our lifetimes, it's going to happen. And that's not because scientists suck. It's just the environment that we live in is so complicated. It's a, it's a, it's a, a living, breathing, incredibly dynamic ecosystem. And as spillover comes, uh, uh, keeps happening, it's gonna, we're gonna keep threatening. So we need to continue supporting the development of vaccines and, and other preventative measures that we can integrate, so. I love it. Plan ahead or fall behind. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you, Jeffrey, for being oh, yeah. here. Did you did you have any final thoughts before we go? No. 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 All right. And plenty of. And whenever you're free, Dan. Whenever you're free. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Dan. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate you know. I don't talk about what you what you do or where you've been or where you're going to go, but I do know that you're going all around the all around the country, stopping and preventing and saving and learning and i really appreciate well, you i'm happy to do it and a last last thing always a good health tip drink lots of water everyone stay hydrated <laughs> you, can't, you can't go wrong with that all right my my roommate says the same thing to me because there's a message every day at four that says drink more water so it's, a running <laughs> joke. it's a running joke around here are you feeling bad drink more water there you go all right take <laughs> yeah. care gentlemen thank you so much and uh and congratulations again thanks dan bye-bye all right, and end the live stream. All right, thank you for being here, Jeffrey. Of course. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. My poor little children. Yes, we can. One day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. It's in this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome to Public, to public Access, Access America. America. Yes, we can. Sunday live streams on YouTube. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter. On Twitter. Apple Podcasts, Podcast, Stitcher, Stitcher Smart, Smart Radio, Radio, Radio Public, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access Public America. Access history America. in the making. Making history in the making.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.